Welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a season. It's not just a Sunday. It's not just a single emphasis, but it's a season, a cycle of the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas itself, Christmas Eve, in fact. And so we have lovely music like this that we have the opportunity to, to get into the spirit of what this season of expectation is all about. And it's also used to prepare us for the time at which we are ready to receive the Christ child. Well, and it's wrapped up in the feeling of expectation. The feeling of expectation is a very powerful thing, don't you know? You remember as a child those opportunities where you were expecting something to happen. And you might go for days preparing yourself for that in excitement. You might have trouble sleeping. You might have trouble uh, just taking care of the normal array of things that you do. Maybe the coming of Christmas was an experience of intense expectation for you when you were a child. It was for me. But when we grow up, that childlike anticipation comes with an added dose of adult anxiety. It's a really odd season. The children are almost hyped up on it, and the adults are really hunkered down into the details of things and about how to do this and how to do that. Expectation can cause us to go in new directions or create new habits. Expectation maybe can keep us steady when everything else is flying off into scattered orbits. Or it can take the form of the expectation of relief or the hope of healing. Perhaps it's just the simplicity that you have the expectation that God will intervene in your life. That God will step in and do something on your behalf. Making a way that did not exist because of your own efforts. There are two scriptures for us this morning. And so it's likely there are two faces of expectation each scripture providing a different view of the expectation God will do something in the world. They come from Jeremiah and they come from Luke. Here it is in Jeremiah. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the, the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Remember the, the split kingdoms at the time. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The second passage comes from the Gospel of Luke. One thing that I've really come to appreciate in growing in my knowledge of Scripture and in my understanding about life is the way that sometimes an Old Testament, a Hebrew passage, walks hand in hand with something out of the New Testament. Two Scriptures, separated by hundreds of years, seem to have the same theme to them, or they, I call it walking together hand in hand. And so here's Jesus. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming around the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a story. This is Jesus' way of teaching. He told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be on guard that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. For that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand through the Son of Man. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There are two faces of expectation on this first Sunday of Advent. The first is a look to the past, to that which is behind us that is known, a way of seeing backward in a time in which a Savior was hoped for. This goes all the way back to Jeremiah when he's beginning to prophesy about the coming of, of the Messiah. It's an orientation to the past in the sense that it's a recapitulation of the longing of a long ago time when women and men of faith anticipated the coming of God's Messiah. The Hebrew prophets had such a strong sense of the coming of God to save God's people. In the midst of strong oppression and suffering there was the anticipation God would enter into human history and actively work for the freedom of Israel. But Advent also looks to the future in an attitude of expectancy over what God has to do in history. Consequently, we have this Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, is always this problematic, kind of a troublesome thing because we're ready, we're so ready to go to the, the manger and to ooh and to ah over the, the Christ child that's come into the world. But Advent pauses on this particular Sunday so that we might have a sense of what's happened and what is happening. We have this Sunday in the season of Advent dedicated to thinking in future tense about the coming of Christ in judgment and power and glory. It's usually Advent's face to the past that we prefer, that we usually seek. Four Sundays set aside to have this that lead us to this wonderful Christmas Eve service. I'm imagining this place in our single service this year being rather crowded and being packed. People who want to come around and gather around the wonder of that night and what it might have been like. They think in what-if terms and they imagine themselves having to come to the manger. And we have this beautiful songbook. We have a particular songbook wrapped around Advent and Christmas that is just stunning in its artistic uh, and musical fair. The expectation of Christ's birth is full of sweetness and grace, and even the most hardened skeptic can feel the pulse of the season and celebrate that magical night. 
The first Sunday of Advent is given over to consider also the world's chaos that bubbles just beneath the surface. It's like a molten core that steams and liquefies unobserved until it explodes and spills over the quiet world above. The first Sunday of Advent forces us to reflect upon that hidden chaos, the world that the Redeemer has been sent to, to enter. Should we take these difficult prophecies as a word for the day, or should we take refuge in the prophecy for the mysterious someday, but something that is not quite yet? Soren Kierkegaard once said that the problem is that life is understood backward, but it must be lived forward. That was his way of saying we have such certainty behind us and we have such unknown in front of us. And that's the problem. That creates some of the tension in life. Abraham Heschel claimed that a prophet was someone who knew what time it was. I like that. Those prophets that we don't generally attract ourselves to, that we don't go find and we don't go listen to, they are the ones, though, who have an idea of what time it is. Six centuries before Jesus, Jeremiah and Jesus stood on the streets of Jerusalem and proclaimed to those who heard them that the city would be destroyed, both of them acting in prophetic vision. And the message was so disturbing to them that both of them uh, wept over the message. The idea of standing there on the streets of Jerusalem and seeing it and seeing it in a future tense and understanding that it would be destroyed made them to weep. When Jesus put on the mantle of prophecy, he turned to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was his muse, his, the one who inspired his thinking in prophetic terms. And he drew upon Jeremiah's prophetic imagery and his words. These two passages separated by six centuries, time, circumstance, nevertheless, they walk hand in hand, seeing the particulars of this world, both seeing God at work, birthing something extraordinary beyond the present moment. Jeremiah's message, though, was, was uttered in a, under the shadow of oppression. The sixth century before the time of Christ, the sixth century and the seventh century, all were, were so troublesome in terms of the history of the country. And so this message from Jeremiah comes from that troubled time, that difficult time. And it's a word that we need to hear uh, as though we're dispossessed slaves. Those are the ears by which to hear the prophets, is to understand that in most of the prophecies they are in exile. They are serving as slaves. And that's a really difficult point of view for us to adopt. For us to understand what is being said, we need to enter into this idea of becoming a dispossessed slave. We're people of control and advantage, and we don't hear this message as though we lived in the 6th century before Christ. In fact, those who share in the power systems of the world should hear these words and tremble. Those who are in control in the world, who run things, who run systems, are not generally taken by the message of the prophet. People who have profited from the status quo might twitch nervously, and maybe rightfully so, whenever, whenever apocalyptic language 
is used because it means a change is coming. The prophetic message is always uttered in the midst of transition towards something that is coming and yet to be. Those who are in power systems will have a hard time preparing for that. It means a change is coming which will likely reverse the conditions for those who are oppressed. How about this for an example? Columbia, South Carolina. Mary Chestnut's diary of March 1865. Here's what she wrote. Sherman marched off in solid column, leaving not so much as a blade of grass behind. A howling wilderness, land laid waste, dust and ashes. Very cryptic, very short, and very descriptive of the effect of, Colonel, of, of General Sherman marching through the land. Her comments record the devastation of the Old South system, whose glory was built on the old plantation system, where slaves from Africa tended massive plots of ground, uh, economically viable crops that created wealth for the shareholders, the slaveholders. It was no small matter then that Mrs. Chestnut failed to mention in her diary her tale of devastation that the slaves were dancing in the streets. So, hearing apocalyptic news may be more about one's position in the world and how the reversal that's coming will affect the, the, uh, the old systems. It's the passage from Luke's gospel that gives us the forward sense of judgment and expectation. So there's a note of a fierce gleam in his eye. Jesus is zeroing in on something very, very important to him. If he's going to talk about the kingdom of God, he's got to talk about these power systems. And we, we have to stop and consider that both Jeremiah and Jesus were telling us this, life is fragile. Here's an example. What took us 20 years and $80 billion to create in Afghanistan collapsed like a proverbial house of cards in just a few days. Life is fragile. Or consider the thousands of rioters who responded to the president's call to overthrow our government on January the 6th. In obedience to him, these rioters marched from the ellipse where the Washington Monument was and they walked down to the Capitol. They marched to the Capitol where they broke out the windows and they broke down the doors of our democracy in order to storm Congress and overthrow the democratic election. What kind of incivility is that? Life is fragile is what Jeremiah and Jesus are bo both pointing us toward. The fragility of things. We think that it's all in place and it's not. I might have been one of those interpreters in the past to suggest that these prophecies of Jeremiah and even Jesus were descriptive of chaos about some distant time of ultimate endings. I think a few years ago I might have said, oh, they're really just pointing over the horizon of time. Well, that's true. But they were also telling us to not fall asleep. What if Jesus was suggesting that the chaos of the world that bubbles just under the surface that I mentioned is a sign of the fragility of life and that we should not fall asleep to its possibility? Listen to what he said that day. 
be careful or that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. You see, it's up to us to realize our world, in spite of the appearance of resilience, of steadiness, of being grounded in some eternal type of things that we would think would hold something together, when actually life is more fragile than we can conceive. To that end, we should heed Jeremiah and Jesus to be cautious and diligent. We should listen to Jesus at this point. We need to hear the sweet, gentle message of the coming of a Savior in the world. We'll get that in Advent. But we also need to hear the message to live expectantly, as if Christ's coming means something right here and now. Where this faith where we live faithfully on his behalf. How do we do that? How is it that we live diligently and faithfully? David Buttrick, the professor of preaching, uh, really in the 20th century, was one of the major voices of how to preach professor. He tells the story of a black woman deep in the bayous of Louisiana who'd raised over a dozen children over the years, most of them adopted or foster kids. And when a newspaper reporter came and interviewed her and asked her why she had done this out of her very meager resources, she replied, I saw a new world coming. This is the way for us to understand that a new world is coming and that we can participate in it. And ever so small our contribution might be to that, that we make a decided attempt to make that happen. In our hearts, we long for Christ's presence. But we are at our best when the Master is with us. Build within our hearts, O God, a sense of holy expectation for Christ's return. While we stay busy, quietly doing the work of God in our time. Amen.